All right, guys. So this is our last episode of the season. And I think you'll see we have a pretty special guest coming up uh, to share it with. I just want to take this time to call out in a very nice way. Uh, so Lauren and I have been recording these shows like the day before they release uh, because of partial DreamWorks schedule, like trying to schedule these interviews and stuff. And I just want to say that I deeply appreciate. So Lauren took the day off work to come do this recording and like really rearranged her life to make this podcast work. And man, Lauren, I've really appreciated doing this show with you for three seasons. It's really been special. Oh man, Eric, I'm going to cry. Don't cry. I, uh, you but know, feel your feelings. I'm more, I'm, I'm more than happy to take off work. Yikes. Uh, no, we get into this later in this episode a little bit. We recorded the interview first and I, I reflect so much on how this show started uh, it was literally, we've told this story before, but we had been political volunteers. Our candidate's candidacy came to an end. Although he is running for city treasurer right now. Yeah, it turns out. Uh, everything loops back around for the better in the end. And I had some real ass stuff going on in my personal life as well. And Eric just sort of said, I have this fun, stupid idea. And I accepted what I thought was going to be a fun, stupid idea for a couple of months <laughs> and next thing you know we have the the relationship that we have with DreamWorks and the caliber of the guests that we've we've had the honor of sitting with over the past couple of weeks and I just never could have imagined of all the projects that I've tried to ignite and all of the side hustles that I've tried to master this is the one that's stuck and I don't think that's for no reason I think there was a lot of luck there but also, Eric, you're an incredibly insightful and talented and generous person. And the work that you've put into this and the thought that you've put into this, I think even if Netflix never rebooted the thing, people still would have loved this show and we still would have made something really good and we still would have had this friendship. And oh. so thank you for doing this. You're too. That's very sweet. <laughs> thank you. You guys are going to love the interview that's coming up. It will probably make you emotional, especially at the end. Um, some bookkeepy things. This is our last show of the season. We'll be back with a check-in of some kind in a month, and then we'll be back for another season when Shira's back for another season. I just want to give a quick shout-out. So our podcast statistics tell us where our listeners are grouped. And somehow... Our two biggest listening cities are not Chicago. They are Boise and Detroit. So if you are in Boise <laughs> and Detroit and you have about 29 friends who would come to a live show, let us know. Maybe we could make something happen. I don't know. I've never been to Boise. Have you? I've not been to Boise. I did just go to Detroit uh, to see when the Star Wars costuming exhibit Ooh. came through there. And I got to stay at an Airbnb where the ceiling was collapsing. That's not Detroit's fault. Detroit was really cool. I heard Detroit is some kind of rock city. Can you confirm? <laughs> uh, there were many rocks around. Wait, was that supposed to be about music? Hey everybody, welcome back to She-Ra Progressive of Power. For just one more week this season, my name is Eric. And I'm Lauren, that's right, it's the season finale. We didn't really uh, tease that at all, it's just happening guys, welcome to the end. Well, <laughs> we might say that in the pre-show that we record post-show, who knows, who knows how this is going to go. But, you know, we've had a string of really amazing guests the last few weeks. We had uh, the story editor of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. We had a character designer for She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Then we, we had Vera. Let's not had, forget. I mean, I was absolutely going to include Vera in Presidential that. candidate Vera. Vera 2020. <laughs> um, but it felt like there was only one way we could really 
and the season and through our magnanimous friends at DreamWorks. It's all happening. So everybody, please put your podcast hands together for Noelle Stevenson. Hello. Hello. So Noelle is the the story editor and executive, not story nope. editor. Nope. Start that one over. <laughs> Noelle is the showrunner and executive producer of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, the show that we love that we've been talking about all year. Um, Noelle, I'd, I'd really, I have a very important question I'd like to kick things off with, if I may. Uh, how much math do you use in your shop? <laughs> How much math do I use? <laughs> All right, so that was a really dumb callback <laughs> to <laughs> Josie's interview. Uh, feel free to ignore. I, um, you know, math is not my strongest suit. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, uh, not a huge part of my job. Fortunately, there are other, other smarter people on this show who are better at math than me. So. Fair <laughs> Don't enough. know if that includes Josie or not. I don't know how good Josie is as math. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, Long I think that's all I've got for you today. Thank you. All right. Noah. Great. Great. A <laughs> uh, hard-hitting interview asking the tough questions, as always, is Eric. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, so uh, we didn't do this with any of the previous guests, but uh, we really wanted to just make the best possible use of you being here and to get as many kind of fan voices and, and diverse perspectives into our opportunity with you. And yeah, so I went on to the interwebs and asked <laughs> uh, some fans to submit questions. Ooh. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, throw you some questions from our listeners and some of our previous guests. Yeah, go I for it. I will try to put them in a good and sensible order. And we'll Sounds see. Good. But they all come from good and sensible people. They do. I, I have that. I have Great. curated them that much. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so you're not going to be reading like YouTube comments to no, me? No, no. <laughs> all right. <laughs> the no. gutters of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> all all just uh, fan theories about your favorite ships. That's all it's going to be. No. Uh, <laughs> all right. Ready. Bring it on. Yeah. So our first question comes from Katie Yutke. She has uh, been a longtime fan of our show, and she is also a huge Critical Role fan. Oh, uh, awesome. She just watched you do... Um, Gosh, the the, inter the Between the Sheets is what it was called. Yeah. With Critical yeah, Role so over fun. on Twitch TV. Um, uh -huh. She mentions all of the spots you've done with uh, the as the werebear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, she wants to ask, uh, what D&D &D class would you place the characters of She-Ra in? And do tabletop RPGs influence your setup of fantasy group dynamics? Oh, my God. I, I think that D&D &D is really tied intrinsically to the creation of this show. Um, I actually started playing D&D &D at around the same time I started developing this show. So um, they really went hand in hand. I sort of do feel like the characters are like they are in these classes and they're trying to play these classes to the best of their abilities, but they're kind of like, it's their first campaign, you know? <laughs> so they're, they're like, like, um, I do have theories about, uh, you know, what classes they are. Like, I think, uh, Adora is a fighter. She was a paladin, but like, she's like, I think Shira has like a really fancy like D20 that she always wants to use, but it like rolls really badly. So she's always trying to like, and everyone's uh, like, just switch <laughs> it out. Just switch it out. Use a different one. She's like, she's no, like, no. <laughs> this is my dice. This is what. This is my thing. Um, I uh, I think Bo uh, multi classes like he's mostly a ranger, but I think he multi classes in bard. Like he's like really good with that like bardic inspiration. Um, 
Glimmer, Glimmer's actually kind of based on my first D&D character, which was a warlock, but I think she's probably more of a sorcerer because uh, she like inherited her power. Um, she has Misty Step, uh, not exactly unlimited Misty Step, um, and she just is a little bit uh, reckless with it. Um, and then catches a rogue, obviously. Um, yeah, so that that's my headcanon. That might be like, yeah, uh, kind of basic, but um, <laughs> that's what I always thought. Awesome. I'm. I was just imagining Katie listening to that answer, and I'm sure you have more than fulfilled her wildest <laughs> dreams. Uh, she also uh, asks, "What?" Well, I'm going to expand this question. <laughs> so she specifically says, "I heard a rumor that songs from the podcast Buffering the Vampire Slayer were played during some people's animating process." I have not heard that. I don't know where that rumor comes from, and so I'm going to expand this out to what do you like listening to? Before we started recording, I heard you say you're actually not a huge podcast person. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, uh, when I was, uh, you know, working on comics and doing more art, I could listen to a lot of a lot of stuff. Um, but right now, it's uh, my, my job doesn't really let me kind of uh, sit and listen to things with a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of specific attention, which is a shame. I'm really looking forward to kind of getting back into that once, you know, I have some more free time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I like to listen to music while I work. Um, I have like a playlist. I listen to a lot of 80s power ballads while I work on the show. <laughs> oh, um, no, wow. oh no, <laughs> Eric grins ear to ear. That was kind of my, when I was first kind of putting together the tone of the show, um, I curated a playlist that was like a lot of Bonnie Tyler, a lot of like Meatloaf, weirdly enough, um, a lot of, uh, and then a lot of like churches, like some synth, like more like contemporary synth music. Um, so that's, I, I just kind of have my like comfort songs, I think, that feel like they fit the tone of the show. And that's a lot of what I listen to. Um, I cannot speak for, you know, every, I, I think every member of the show, uh, every member of the crew has their own preferred listening um but uh that's that's mine that's so cool i i uh, my friend tyler and i like every february 1st through 14th we do this gigantic celebration of power ballads called a fortnight from the heart where every oh day uh we like pick our favorite that we're listening to that year and like put out 14 valentine's day carols uh, like on social media that we love because power <laughs> ballads are valentine's day carols so i wish this interview was like one week sooner because that was all that was on oh my, my mind God. last week noel's favorite valentine's day this carols. was a big year for rock set for me and heart uh, yes get, oh my god right classic classic oh my gosh i also really like kate bush i don't know why i feel like kate bush just like fits she-ra in a way that i can't fully articulate it's I the just, energy like, it's just this radiating type of energy yeah. i think I'll just be like listening to like this woman's work and just like I'm like this is it this is the soul of the show. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you you touched on comics back there uh, while you were talking and of course that's where so uh, many of your fans know you from. Um, I just reread Nimona. Vera is a huge Lumberjanes fan and w was oh, really awesome. excited to talk to us about that. Yeah. Uh, Shelby Mongan, friend of the show, asks, what changed about your story development process when you transitioned from comics into cartoons? Ooh. I know, so good I one, think, right? Shelby. Yeah, that, that's a juicy one. Um, 
comics is even when you're working with a team in comics, it tends to be a uh, much more solitary pursuit. You kind of um, you're do like you don't have access to a story room or a story editor or like uh, and and you're not necessarily one thing that was really important to me when coming to Shira was making sure that there was a lot of communication between our board artists and our writers. Um, so they were really collaborating in the storytelling process. Uh, there's less of that in comics. I think uh, there should be more. Um, but it's just a lot of that is just based on the time frame that comics are made in. They tend to be a pretty quick turnaround. Um, so in in my work, I have done uh, a lot more. You know, Nimona, I did everything myself. I, uh, I uh, wrote it. I drew it. I colored it. I hand lettered it. I did everything. Um, and because of that, my my process was a little more fluid for it. I um, I would rewrite pages after I'd drawn them. I'd just like rewrite all the dialogue or I'd, you know, start drawing a page and then halfway through drawing the page, I'd just be like, no, I'm going to try something else here. Um, and because, you know, I was only accountable to myself, that was pretty easy to do. Um, I, I sort of left it up to, you know, the script is more of guidelines and then the actual p finished page is uh, is when you make the final decision on what the storytelling decision is going to be. Um, in animation, you're accountable to a lot more people than that. Um, you are working with just a much larger group of people who are all working towards the same end. And a lot of my job uh, became communicating those ideas effectively, whereas with myself, I don't have to necessarily... Um, verbalize why I think a story idea should be implemented. Uh, when it comes to a show, it really has to be something where you, it's a, it's a dialogue. Um, you know, at every step of the process, you have to be like keeping track of the story details, communicating them effectively, taking other people's ideas and into account and kind of letting the story evolve with those ideas. So I think that's one of the most rewarding parts for me working on a show like this, because everyone who works on the show is so passionate, so skilled, has so many great ideas. And all those ideas kind of, they they make the show better and less predictable and like more uh, interesting. So I think that that's like, it's the two processes, both of them I, I really enjoy in different ways. But I think uh, the... I, I, the part about animation that I like the most is that sort of uh, constant feedback of, uh, you know, um, collaborating with a team to tell a story. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of, you know, collaborating with other people's ideas, you, it, it's most hard to be so challenging to work with so many people in one room with a mutual goal. But she has also a legacy show with, you know, a previous iteration and an older generation of fans. Uh, Shelby was also interested in knowing how did you personally balance the expectations of sort of legacy 80s fans and, you know, your people and your enthusiastic team and your new ideas? I think I tried, especially with the team, to sort of um, uh, protect them from that a little bit. Uh, I, I definitely, in the early stages when I was developing it largely on my own, 
I did a lot of research. I took it. I I took it all into account. Um, but it was also something that I wanted to make sure that the show stood on its own. That it was doing. What, that I was being true to what this show needed to be. So while it was something that I was thinking about and trying to be sensitive about, I also really wanted to make sure that we weren't being um, held back by fear in any way. Um, and so it was something that while a lot of members of the crew developed a, like a huge interest and, and love of the original series while on the show or had it to begin with, um, that we were approaching this show as its own thing that stood on its own. Um, honestly, it was just like I, I really wanted I, – I knew that there would be um, – a reaction from fans of the legacy uh, property when it was announced, when it first came out. I very much um, was anticipating that and was preparing for that. Um, but I also, what I, my ideal outcome that I hope is true is that like if those legacy fans kind of gave it a try, even though there would be a lot of things that were different, they would find that it was true to the spirit of the original, that there were things that they recognized that kind of like, you know, finding those pieces from the original that were really, really important to the core of the show and the message of the show and making sure that those were intact, even if we're kind of changing uh, the vehicle that are, is delivering that. Um, and so, you know, that's what I hope every time I hear from a, a fan of the original who grew up with it being like, I love, I love that show. I love your show. Um, they, you know, they're very different in a lot of ways, but I hope that we are, you know, staying true to the spirit and the, the core of the original. Yeah. I, I, one of, one of the other people who submitted questions, her name is Dee Dee Holtz, and she was actually very interested in sort of what you're striking at. The the relationship between kids watching the show and adults watching the show, but specifically parents and kids watching it together. Mm -hmm. um, Dee Dee was more asking in the, in the context of Nimona and uh, Lumberjanes, but have you heard from you know, the, the families that have gotten to experience your work? And do you think your work is affecting how families speak to one another about stories? I, I have heard from, you know, I've heard from uh, parents and I've heard at, it's a little harder, especially because um, the way that most fans express or communicate um, their uh, feelings about something is over the internet, but a very <laughs> young child, like kind of our target audience, isn't doesn't necessarily have a Twitter account. So right. I don't always hear from them. I do get emails, um, and sometimes it'll be a much younger child who's sort of writing with the assistance of a parent. Sometimes I just got an email from you know an amazing kid. It's like I'm 11 and three quarters too, and I was like yes. <laughs> um, I get emails from parents who sort of like relate anecdotes to me. Um, and that's something that, you know, uh, I, that's super important to me. I mean, that's like exactly what we were going for to like span uh, th those generations and have something that parents could get interested in um, as much as their kids got interested in it. Uh, and part of that is not really pulling your punches or talking down to kids when it comes to weighty topics that, um, you know, we all deal with in the real world, uh, but then also making sure that it's fun and that it has a lightness to it and a and a freedom to it so that, you know, we're also not just dumping a ton of uh, like sadness and suffering <laughs> on our audiences, you know, like uh, trying to be very thoughtful about um, how we're speaking to our audience. So I think it'll it'll um, 
I, I look forward to hearing from more families and from more kids. Uh, I, I can't wait to sort of start the convention circuit this year and hopefully meet some of the younger fans because that's really, you know, uh, it's their opinions that I'm kind of the most excited about. <laughs> yeah, like the opinions of people like us only go so far. We completely understand that <laughs> as, as hosts of a show about your show. Like, yeah, the kids are, are where it's at. So that's awesome. Well, and that's the hardest thing I think coming into a show like this because you do want to play, you do want to pay homage to the original and to the legacy fans and the fandom that's still that's still going strong, but at the same time, I you know it was so important to me to genuinely appeal to kids today to make something that they would see and without having to know anything about the original show to be like oh that looks cool I want to like I want to watch that I want to meet these characters, um, and and just really you know. Uh, making sure that it really did appeal to kids. Like, that was really important to me. Well, kind of part of the lore of our podcast is that I, I'm like the old school fan. Like, literally watching He-Man is my first conscious memory, which seems crazy, but I swear it's true. But Lauren was introduced to She-Ra two years ago when I saw <laughs> Wonder Woman and, and was like, I want to do a podcast about She-Ra. <laughs> Lauren, will you do this with me? So we haven't really talked about this explicitly, but now Lauren, with Noel Stevenson on the line, I'm curious, like, if this had been your introduction to She-Ra, would you have these, these like, good feelings about it? Like, I feel like this is the She-Ra that we always knew could exist, right? Well, that is a really interesting question because I obviously love this Netflix show so much and I've been so thrilled to get to ask all of my stupid fan <laughs> questions to all of these people who created it. Thank you guys. Uh, yeah, for real. And I, I do think I would have loved it, but I'm also unsure if I would have found it in the first place. Mm. You know, like I didn't watch Voltron, even though all of my cosplay friends were all about Voltron for a while. It really took you being so excited about something to bring me to it. And I, I appreciate that because you got Netflix, you got Hulu, you got Amazon Prime. There are just so, so many options that I don't know if I would have been attached to this in the same way. I know that I would have loved it when I found yeah. it, but who knows if I ever would have gotten there. There you go. DreamWorks 32-year-old men who can't get over <laughs> cartoons they loved. That's that's your real audience. Dragging their friends <laughs> into the fandom. Uh, speaking of fandom, actually, one more question from our listeners. So Ashley Demma was our guest for the Princess Prom episode. She considers herself kind of a social media influencer. She's really trying to make her career that way. And she recognizes that a lot of your work was on Tumblr. You had, you know, webcomic stuff happening. She wants to know with Tumblr sort of fading and fandom culture sometimes being toxic, do you still consider social media to be a way to get your art out there and a way to get noticed? Is that still viable in your opinion? I think that when I got my start on the internet on Tumblr, um, one thing that I knew right away was that like, I think at the time, the same thing was sort of happening with LiveJournal, where it had been this really thriving fandom community. I just missed it. Um, but all of my friends who were in fandom had a really strong connection to LiveJournal. And it was starting to go through some of the same stuff. Blogs were getting erased. Uh, kind of the the archives, things that should have been archived were just sort of lost. Um, and fandom as a whole underwent a change. Um, and I knew 
that that's that would happen eventually like it wasn't just going to be this new status quo that would remain forever set in stone that isn't really how the internet works um and so i didn't want my work to be so dependent on one form of social media that it kind of didn't work or make sense outside of that um and that was you know, when I was making Nimona, that was something I was thinking about. I had been known as a fan artist up until that point. My my comics got a lot of um, got a lot of uh, eyes on them through Tumblr and through the way that things spread on Tumblr. And I definitely appreciated the benefits of that. Um, but I didn't want. I knew at some point that would not. Uh, without me evolving as an artist, as a person, that wasn't going to be kind of a something that would be true forever, I guess. Um, and so even now, like I, I'm a lot more active on Twitter. My Tumblr is sort of neglected and, and covered in dust. But um, even Twitter, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that these things are forever at all. We're always kind of evolving. And with the technology that we have access to, that's always evolving. Um, there are things that, you know, younger people than I, I still think of myself when I'm like, oh yeah, I'm yeah, like a young, hip person I know all the things and then I hear about I'm like <laughs> what is what's 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 discord like what's tiktok like what I don't fully understand what's going on right now uh and I and I realized that this is just it, it evolves so quickly um and I think it's something that I don't want my work to be dependent on again I don't want it to be something that it's like this only really makes sense to this group of people in this place um I do uh, I have a lot of fond memories of, you know, kind of Tumblr's heyday and my involvement in it, my involvement in Tumblr fandom. Um, that is not kind of the be all end all of, uh, of what I want my, um, my work to be. Um, and so I, I don't think that, you know, I hope that the Tumblr fandom keeps kicking for a long time. I think that there's still a lot that's special about that. Um, I think it's also going to evolve in a lot of ways that we don't even know yet. So um, I think that I my hope is that this show stands uh, independent of that, even if it uh, appreciates engagement on that platform, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I always think about how, like, once a path to success has been has worked once, everyone kind of gloms onto it and then, you know, diminishing returns. So there's always yeah. a new unseen path to success. But uh, well, even being in like a fandom, like one of the things I did that always got like a lot of visibility was I would do these like parody Hunger Games comics uh, based on the movies. Um, and those would always get like, you know, they get a lot of uh, attention. But now there are no more Hunger Games movies coming out. So yeah. it's kind of like, you know, like, if that was going to be my whole brand, I would have run out of material uh, yeah. very rapidly. So it's just kind of like, well, you know, what outside of individual fandoms, outside of individual social media platforms, what kind of stories are you interested in telling? What sort of space are you interested in cultivating? Um, and it's, yeah. I think there's an interesting distinction there between like internet fandoms and like IRL space, which I don't think we have the maybe time or even the the philosophical capacity to get question. into. Yeah. yeah, but I'd like to um, mark that in the brains of our listeners because that would be a fascinating thing to 
discuss later. I do want to point out that there's a cool overlap between your answer and uh, Ray answered a similar question when they were on the show about kind of coming uh, from fandom. And, and obviously, Shira's not your first professional work, but uh, as it is for Ray. But I think that's really cool and inspiring that like you both took something you loved and did for fun and turned it into an entire career path. Like, that's really awesome. Yeah, totally. I think I honed my my storytelling sensibilities, my sense of humor. I, I figured out what types of stories I was passionate about through that um, and what sort of characters I gravitated towards. So I think the DNA is still in everything I do. Um, but, you know, I also try to evolve that as much as possible. Uh, before we take up all of your time, we would like to talk a little bit about the episode Battle of Bright Moon. Because it is the end of the podcast season and the end of the She-Ra season. Yeah. We got to touch on it. Yeah. So let, let's let's touch on some points in this episode. This is obviously the, the finale. It's, it's really a gigantic action set piece with some really cool character moments and like a really lovely reunification of the Princess Alliance at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I have in my notes, I feel like we need to talk about Spinnerella and Natasa real quick. <laughs> oh, what about them? This well, this is their kind of their their time to shine, but our beloved Bo, even though he's such a nice dude, even still throws a little bit of shade on their being around. <laughs> I just I guess I want to hear Noel like what what is what from the creators what how do you all feel about Spinnerella and Natasa like we all love them right <laughs> honestly the entirety of that joke is just that um they like there's a princess of nets i <laughs> love that that is my favorite thing i mean of all the princess powers that we've seen a lot of them are tied into the elements uh she tosses nets that's her power and I love that. I mean, it's something that I like. It's how could you not indulge in that, you know? Um, so I, you know, a lot of it is just uh, I I love these characters. I mean, I voice Spinnerella, so she's she's close to my heart. They're both close to my heart. I didn't um, know that. And <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah. The one line of dialogue that she has in that episode that's that's me. It started out as a scratch, a scratch sort of thing, and then I was like, oh well, you know. Let's do this. Um, yeah, but, it, you know, uh, my entire concept for them was kind of that they are this, they, they're a couple, you know, they, they're a bonded pair, even in the original series. I think they only appear in one episode of the original series, but, uh, like, having this, they're slightly older than the other princesses, like, they were a part of the original Princess Alliance, so it's almost like they have their own life outside of what these teenagers are doing and the teenagers don't fully understand it because they're teenagers, you know? So that's kind of where the bow joke comes from that like Spinnerella and Natasha are doing their own thing. Like they probably have like a lovely house somewhere and like have this whole other life outside of like what the teenagers are perceiving them as. But because again, they're teenagers. It's like they're they're not as perceptive, or Bo maybe isn't as perceptive about like obviously her power is tossing Ned's dude. It's right right there. Well, for um, sure. And as a busy adult, I guess I can declare myself an adult at this point. Certainly <laughs> compared to a teenager, you know, 
my time is super valuable and it is really wonderful and admirable that these two people with these robust lives in that lovely house wherever they are they they still show up every time they carve Mm -hmm. out the time every time yeah I think they're just like you know they are the two princesses who stayed when every other princess in the princess alliance sort of left and went their own way of the original princess alliance um and i think that they have a stability to them that you know our our younger characters are are often so messy and so melodramatic and their feelings sort of run wild but these two are just their relationship is very stable their uh their presence is very reliable and I, I think the joke became that, uh, you know, they were just like to show up and fight alongside the younger people. They're just kind of like, oh, OK, yeah. All right. Of course, you don't know what we do. Like, <laughs> of course, you're not like paying attention. Um, so, yeah, that was really uh, I think Bo was. Uh, yeah, I'm I, just, didn't have, I didn't have an end to that. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm glad to hear you give them some vindication. And I, I assume we'll see a little bit more of them as the as the show progresses. Yeah, yeah, we have some great arcs coming up for them. Um, Again, like they're a little bit separate from the core princess group just because they're um, slightly older, uh, but, and yeah, they're, yeah. I'm just really excited about that sort of lore concept in general. I took note this watch through that Entrapta specifically calls out the difference between elemental princesses and other types of princesses. Entrapta says, I don't have a runestone, and Natasa is apparently the princess of nets. It sort of leaves a infinite door open for creativity, you know? Uh, I said this on the last episode about little girls and little boys playing out on the playground. You could really invent whatever kind of princess you want to, and it would fit into this world, and that's so exciting. Yeah, and I think that's what's fun about this world, too. I mean, again, uh, so much of the job on this show is like every every single part of this show has its roots in something from the original. And it's such a, there's just everything in the original. If there's something that you like or are interested in, there's something like that in the original. So there's so many different types of magic users. You know, I think in the original, Natasha doesn't have powers. She literally just has nets on her that she throws at people. Um, and Spinarella, she just spins really fast. Like we sort of, you know, made her a little bit more of like the princess of wind. Uh, but like in, in the original, she she spins. Um, and so, and then you have the sorcerers and then you have, you know, Perfuma, who's the princess of plants and controls all plants. And it's just like, you know, there's so many different types of ways to have power um, that I really wanted to explore that and, and weave that into the mythology of the world, you know? So that's sort of... That's sort of where that comes from. I'd like to think that instead of like nets being a thing you could be a princess of, nets are actually an environmental force that we've all just missed. <laughs> like that's what binds us together. Very powerful. But, you know, we'll let the physicists talk about that one. It's so fu- I just feel I'm like, I think there was like a joke that we I think the reason why that joke came, I'm trying to like backtrack this in my mind. I feel like there was originally a joke that like because Bo has net arrows that he uses pretty often that Natasha was sort of like irritated by that. She's like, no, I do the nets here. Like, stop that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I don't, yeah, I don't remember what that was. (laughs) I, I love what you're saying about all the different ways a person can be powerful because one of the things that really gets me about this episode is that 
Shira gets her butt kicked through mm-hmm. through most of it. Yeah. She doesn't stand out in this episode as this solo powerhouse who's going to save yeah. the day. She really needs everyone. She doesn't start glowing until the support of her friends is there next to her. And uh, to go back to Eric's question sort of about my exposure to the 80s cartoon and how it affects this one, the first time I watched this episode, there was a part of me that was really waiting for She-Ra to like hulk out and do it and, and take care of business. And watching it again yesterday, it's not about that. It's about the princesses of power and that we all have something to contribute and she needs all of them. And I think that is a really modern and important thematic switch to have turned this into. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, I think it's very... Um it's very Adora. I think she's a little bit of a like a glutton for punishment in some ways, like because she's always so afraid of doing the wrong thing at the beginning of this episode when it's like, OK, there are too many people out there, even for she to take on. She's like, no, I'm doing it like no one else needs to go out there with me. I'm going to go do it. And that's just like that's. That's her. Like, she really, like, she's kind of ready to get her butt kicked, you know? She's like, I want to be the only one who gets hurt right now. (laughs) Right. Well, and it doesn't come from a place of thinking she's powerful enough. Yeah. Because she doesn't. It comes from a place of self-blame. I wrote a bunch of that in my notes about how she says, I pushed Katra further to the side of evil. Everything that's happening now is my fault. She'd rather be punished for it even if she can't win. I think the events of 111 uh, tie pretty directly into this episode. Um, I wrote both of them, so that was sort of uh, a through line that I was very conscious about. Um, I think that Adora had her worldview challenged in 111 in a way that she never had. The idea that like, oh, Adora thought she was always trying to do the right thing for Katra and realizing that Katra actually had resentment towards those things instead of them being the good thing that she intended. I think that that rattled her hard to her core. And so Adora's emotional state and mental well-being are very much tied to how powerful she is as She-Ra. As soon as she starts, you know, letting her insecurities take over, she gets less powerful and especially when she's alone. So because she refuses to let the other princesses or she refuses to let Bo and Glimmer kind of fight beside her at first, um, that sort of, it takes over. She is so distracted by this that like, she's kind of taken out by this fight with Katra. Um, and it's really not until the other princesses come, like she's kind of lost the fight that when the other princesses come and and defend her, that is part of what brings her her confidence back and her power back. It's like uh, she is just, yeah, she's just so she's almost like she, she yeah she's looking to be punished in some way. Well, we come back on this show a bunch to how sometimes the characters on this show they underestimate each other. And Adora's not doing Catra any favors, but she's also not doing, say, Glimmer any favors by mm-hmm. trying to protect them and underestimate them. Glimmer has this amazing, like, Final Fantasy dragoon mm-hmm. drop in this episode yeah. where she saves her mom and she's such a just phantasmal badass. Uh, and, you know, if, if 
Shira or Angela or someone had kept Glimmer inside that day, Glimmer wouldn't have been able to shine either. Yeah. And I think that's part of like, it's, it's something that we deal a lot with in Adora as a character throughout the whole show. I think it's her kind of fatal flaw. This exact same thing that she was doing with Catra, which was like, in order to defend Catra, I have to sort of take control of the situation or sort of like, like she almost takes agency away from Catra by trying to protect her. She's doing the exact same thing here. She's like, I don't want Glimmer and Bo to get hurt. So you guys should stay inside and I'll go get hurt by myself. She's being self-sacrificial, which is a, you know, a positive attribute of her, but it also sort of shows a lack of faith in the people around her that like, they know what they're doing. They know the risks and they're ready for them. So it's something that Adora as a character struggles with a lot. Um, it's not because she thinks that she's stronger than everyone else or that she's better equipped to win the fight by herself. It's just that she partially as atonement just really wants to take every single bullet, like throw herself on every single grenade so that nobody else even has the option of getting themselves hurt. And there's definitely, it feels like there's a, a mega arc throughout the season of, of kind of, even if Adora hasn't quite learned it yet, like, all of the characters learning that they really are, if I may parrot this slogan, stronger together. Like that's what popped into my head during this last episode is like the reunification of the alliance is what saves the day. It's not any one person's actions. It's everybody realizing, hey, we're all in this. And I, I, I don't know. I, I find that very cool and very, even though you couldn't have planned it this way, very like culturally relevant as well. Oh, we did. We did plan it this way. <laughs> well, I, I guess I, uh, you couldn't have seen the depths to which it would be necessary when you were plotting the season. Maybe. No, I mean, we did. This was a like the this show got started like production began in earnest in 2016. This was not an accident. I like everyone on this show was pouring their feelings about the world into the show and even though it's fantasy and it's escapist in a lot of ways and we disregard a lot of the prejudices that we deal with every single day in real life uh, in order to create an escapist fantasy um it still comes out in so many ways through so many of the characters uh through their personalities and their struggles like it's it's we're putting our own feelings into that in almost every single character in, in so many ways. So it's uh, it might not be a one-to-one. It's not like an allegory of like, oh, here's, you know, this is one-to-one with some kind of real-world specific political thing. Right. It's like, it's it's our, our feelings and our struggles uh, are being expressed uh, through the show. But I think that gives it more power in a way because it has this evergreen feel. And also sometimes things can be so one-to-one that it starts to feel didactic. You know, like one of my things I say on the show is I almost feel like the 80s show is somehow more one-to-one to our current time because like, let's just say some villains are so cartoonish, you know, some things are so outlandish, but maybe we're seeing them in reality now. Whereas the presentation, <laughs> go ahead. I, it was, sorry, I just got excited. You, you finish. <laughs> oh, well, just like, I think your presentation is much more believable in a fantasy setting, but also uh, allows us to extrapolate and, and take lessons back into the real world that I, I think all art wants us to do, right? Like, there's no such thing as apolitical art. There's just art that agrees with all of your assumptions or not. So my... One big shift that I had um, with my approach to this show, 
I have always had a, a big interest in villains um, and have related to them very much. Uh, so She-Ra is pretty much a perfect fit for me because it's uh, that and the whole Masters of the Universe world. It's as much about the villains as it is about the heroes. They're almost dual protagonists. Like there are episodes that take place almost entirely through the point of view of the villains. Um, and so that was something I was really excited about. But I realized um, – early in the process for this show that that was that was kind of the fantasy the idea that villains you know that the idea of the complicated villain who's sympathetic and is doing things out of some deep hurt not that it's not true but when you start to see the lack of empathy and the and just the lack of shame that real world villains express when they when they hurt people when they take away people's rights and i started to i started to realize that even even hordak is kind of a fantasy you know of like uh, like what if these were the villains that we that we faced these like these complicated these shades of gray that you feel for them you hurt for them like uh, that's the escapist version instead of being like all right, we're going to face off against this real world person. So the pain so often comes from just being like, how could you think that? How could you do that? Why don't you seem to care about that? And there's not really an answer. Um, We try to put narratives on it and be like, maybe it is because of some kind of like personal hurt or something like that, but it doesn't really explain anything and it doesn't really make anything better. So the ability to be able to explore villains in this way and what makes them villains and what, contributed to them going down the path they are uh that in its own way was kind of an escapist fantasy i think i am relating to that so hard right now because i've expressed before i'm a particularly a huge disney villain fan i've multiple times stopped short of a tattooing scar from the lion king on my body (laughs) Uh, And so I'm often looking for that sort of um, thought exercise, you know, well, what is Gaston's perspective? He's just trying to save a girl from a beast. He makes sense. And I completely agree with you that in today's political scene, I think the most intellectual and the most empathetic of us must really step up to the challenge and draw some lines in the sand because there are negative opinions and then there's bigotry and then there are hate crimes and at some point you on that sliding scale you got to stop giving those people your empathy and a platform you know a, a hate crime is a hate crime an atrocity is an atrocity and some villains are just unforgivably atrocious and there's levels you know there's your shadow weavers who who both abuse and are abused and then there's your hordex and I think it's a really deft touch that we see almost none of him in this first season. I love that it didn't end with a giant Shira Hordak fight. Like, <laughs> we don't know what that looks like yet. Um, it's creepy, and it, it feels, yeah, in a weird way, even though it fits the fantasy, it also feels very realistic. This episode definitely ends mid-war. It has a very warlike feel. Declaring something the Battle of Bright Moon says, there's going to be more battles, and... Um, the, the, the episode literally ends with 
Kordak guaranteeing that the war will continue to rage. Well, and that's kind of, we see that in the battle for Bright Moon, right, which is the end of Secret of the Sword. Hordak's last line to He-Man and She-Ra is, you may have won the battle, but you haven't won the war. And then what happens? We spend 90 episodes with the same status quo, more or less. <laughs> we, all, we love the original, but like... I don't think that's what's going to happen. Like, Noel, can you say on record whether you will have 90 episodes where nothing <laughs> changes? I think that's yeah. pretty, pretty clear I'm, no. But also, this epi- this show is about the conflict between good versus evil. Like, at yeah. its most simplest, most simplest, at its simplest form, that is what this show is about. And yeah, we are going to have massive status quo shifts. Like, you guys have no idea. Oh. <laughs> but it's, uh, at its heart, that's what's always going on. It's the dark versus the light. And we're nowhere near done. This was just the first step. Um, but again, I, I like there are, there are so many um, variables uh, that can be changed in these dynamics. Already having Shadow Weaver deposed in the first season, uh, that changes the the equation you know there's so many things that can change to affect the status quo in really huge ways so speaking of the light uh before we go i feel like i have to ask you about the rainbow and if if this question is too heavy uh we can cut this but uh as some background so i went to a storytelling show this sunday and it was fan fiction february and out of the seven presenters there were two at least two lgbt folks and they both talked about how And I didn't put these words in their mouths. I was just in the audience. But they both talked about how if they were teenagers writing fan fiction now, they would both be writing about She-Ra. And (laughs) I I know that LGBT youth have reached out to us. um, And I I think that there is – I don't want to say a sense of ownership because that implies something untoward. But there's a real sense of identification in – in Shira with with this group of people, and I think that Rainbow is such a really like pointed uh, visual example of that. And I, I mean, base level, I just think it's so lovely that there's a show that these folks feel like speaks to them. But is there anything? Do you have any further comment on that? I guess. Uh, I mean, yeah, the show is my comment. Like, <laughs> <laughs> touche. Yeah, touche. No. You know, I am a I'm a gay woman. Uh, I'm engaged to a woman. Um, it was re- I was really passionate about uh, the show has this in its DNA from the very beginning. I when I first was researching the show, developing the show, and I go and I watch my first episode of Shira, and I get to the end of the title sequence and. I see that hero shot of all the heroes standing on the cliff and it's all these women and then Bo with his tummy out and a big red heart on his chest and then a rainbow arching overhead and I'm like, yes, oh <laughs> my God. I have never felt more at home. I've never felt more excited. Like this is exactly what I want. So the the iconography of the rainbow is not an accident. Um, it is... I, I think it's always been in the in the fabric of the show. I think it has always been a very gay show. It would be, I would not be doing the source material justice if this were not a very gay show. I, oh, right, and it's like... something that even less than being like, oh, here are the ships, here are the couples, here are the pairings. It's just like, here is a world where queer themes are so interwoven into the fabric of the show that they exist on every level. They could exist anywhere, even if they're not made explicit. Obviously, there are still um, barriers in some places about how 
how these stories can be told based on the fact that, you know, you're working within a corporation, but making these themes so integral to the show, they can't be removed. They can't be, you can't take them out. That, I, I remember when we pitched this episode, the rough boards originally, and that there's that rainbow scene at the end, and, you know, our executive is like, the rainbow, like, what, what does that what does that represent? Like, I don't quite get it yet. And I, and I just said, totally deadpan. It's the gay agenda. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and he just sort of was like, okay. And we just moved on. And mm-hmm. like, that was it. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> I hope a certain subsect of fan doesn't listen to just this part of the show. I hope they do. I hope this is all they listen to. Only this, this not part. A, this isn't a secret. This isn't, right. This is not something that I'm ashamed of or that is like a secret of the show. This is something that's very important to me. It's a big part of what the show is. And again, I think that is bigger than even just ships. You know, it's not just about ships. It's about, you know, showing characters and showing a world where this is just a part of normal life, that this is something that's normal and like integral and, and valuable. Like that's really important for me to show. It's... Yeah, it's big. It's a big deal for me. What's so amazing that keeps us stargazing? And what do we think we might see? Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection. The lovers, the dreamers. Before we let you go, Noel, is there anything you want to uh, indicate, like say to our listeners, say to your fans, anything about upcoming? I know you can't spoil, but what do you want to get out there? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, just thank you. Thank you for watching the show. Thank you for discussing the show. Thank you for picking up on everything that we put into the show. We put our hearts into this in so many ways, just in, and it, it is so deeply from the heart and uh and the fact that that fans and viewers have have picked up on those things and and are appreciating those things that means so much to us and it means that you know we are succeeding and and communicating what we're trying to communicate um you know like it means a lot that you guys are going through this show and and discussing the episodes individually i hope that in future seasons you know that you that you like find even more stuff that you're excited about and excited to talk about. I hope that we give you that material. Um, I'm really excited. I'm really excited for what's to come. Uh, there's just, there are so, there are so many things even just in the next episode drop that are just like, they're going to change the whole tone of the show, not the whole tone of the show, the whole stakes of the show, the status quo of the show. Um, I am. I'm just really excited, and uh, it means a lot to you know hear from people asking questions, people uh, expressing love for the characters, and and people you know digging in with a critical eye uh, to explore the themes and the relationships and the characters in a in a deeper way. So thank you for doing that, and uh, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you uh, for giving us this show. And I, I <laughs> promise we will continue to love it. All right. I hope you do. Thanks for listening to she Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com. 
or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressive of power. Eric is currently drinking out of a mug that says world's dumbest idiot. <laughs> Eric, that's not that's not very kind to yourself. That's not what I think of you. Well, <laughs> we were all out of world's best Shira podcaster mugs, so I've I've hoarded all of those. It's true. You've hoarded all of those. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right, so that's the kind of repartee you can expect on this show, Noel. High Thank quality you. comedy. Love it. Love Thank it. you for waiting. Nappy. <laughs> This podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening.